Wood McKenzie's Solar and Energy Storage Summit is back, taking place at the Palace Hotel in San Francisco on June 21st and 22nd. Join expert solar and storage analysts for discussions with leading grid-scale utilities, solar and energy storage developers, and federal policymakers. How is the IRA catapulting the development of solar and storage in North America? How can we continue to build a productive environment for solar and energy storage as we move forward with the energy transition? Expect two days of panel discussions, presentations, and workshops as we explore the opportunities for solar and storage in the coming decades. If you're interested in sponsoring or attending, find out more at woodmac.com events. We think about a transition. It is not merely the fuel sources that we're transforming or even the business model, but literally the regulatory construct in which all of this is taking place. This is The Interchange Recharged. I'm David Van Miller. In the U.S. last year, solar PV capacity totaled 142 gigawatts, enough to power about 25 million homes. Falling costs, advancements in storage and cell technology, and supportive government policies drove record growth in 2022. This was about an 11% year-on-year increase. Residential solar in 2022 had a record year with nearly six gigawatts of installations, a 40% increase on 2021. It wasn't all plain sailing though. We saw some downturn in other market segments as supply chain issues caused delays and roadblocks to adoption. Utility scale solar was down over 30% year-on-year, but despite these challenges, the IRA and other market forces have created upside to long-term solar forecasts. Over the next decade, the industry will grow fivefold. 700 gigawatts of total capacity could power more than 125 million American homes. So what can we expect from solar over the next 10 years? More importantly, what is happening now and what will happen in 2023 that will impact the future of solar energy? Abigail Hopper is the president and CEO of the Solar Energy Industries Association the National Trade Organization for America's Solar Industries. Leadership really matters. Elections have consequences that if we did not have President Biden in the White House really standing up for the policy that he put in place, we as an industry would be facing billion dollars of retroactive tariffs today. Every quarter in conjunction with Wood McKenzie, the SEIA releases their U.S. Solar Market Insight Report. It examines the data and analyzes installations, costs, manufacturing and demand projections. On The Interchange today, we look at some of the key aspects of the report and explore the direction of solar in the U.S. in 2023. With year-on-year growth in residential solar, demand is clearly there, so how can the U.S. get the supply to where it's needed? John Berger is founder and CEO of Sonova, a leading residential solar and storage provider. You cannot have a technological shift like we're talking about. Yes, it was brought about to address climate change, but there is a huge technological shift in solar and storage with distributed uh, capabilities that we've never had before, going back to the beginnings of the electrical industry with Thomas Edison. Even as supply chain constraints slow the market, solar accounts for nearly 5% of U.S. electricity generation. The challenges to increasing that percentage are numerous. China's dominance of the supply chain promises to throw up a number of them in 2023, but there are more factors at play. Everything you need to know about solar in the U.S. coming up. 
John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Abby, uh, thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's super uh, exciting to be here. Thanks for having me. So we had a, uh, a record first quarter of 23 uh, for installed solar capacity. Uh, obviously good news. But Abby, why don't I start with you? What, what are your thoughts on the overall state of the solar market and what's going on? Uh, let's spend one more minute on the thing you just brushed over. We've had the biggest first quarter in the industry's history, which given how tumultuous 2022 was, both highs and lows, I think it's something to note, right? That, that the Q1 of 2023 was the best Q1 we've ever had. We see growth in almost all market segments. I know we'll get into that in a little bit, but in the utility scale, residential and commercial, they've all grown uh, this year. All that being said, there's still a lot of unknowns in our marketplace. I just told you I'm sitting here across from the White House, spent the last few days meeting with members of the administration talking about all the guidance that's coming out. So there's still a great amount of uncertainty. And so the, I would say the market feels sort of incredibly ripe and growing, but we haven't quite reached full maturation because we're waiting for more clarity. John, what are your thoughts? Well, as Abby said, I mean, Q1 was a great quarter, and I think it was our biggest quarter ever as a company. We're on the residential side, and we do some commercial. We just got into the commercial, so there's nothing that we reported yet as far as a customer growth in the commercial segment yet. But uh, despite not having as quick and, and clear guidance on the ITC adders, which is what Abby was referring to, I think everybody, including those that are working on giving the guidance, would like to have the guidance out faster and based on my conversations. So we'd love to have that, but I wouldn't say that was necessarily holding back the market in a big way. Um, certainly there's some ascribed segments like the energy communities, LMI, the, that guidance was, uh, I think, fair to say disappointingly uh, sparse to none on, on the behind the meter. You know, those are communities that are being a disadvantage right now that should be uh, advantaged per the law. And so we need to see that guidance come out and and reassess instead of waiting on like LMI guidance for next year, pull it into this year. And so, yes, there's some uh, disappointments there, but let's talk about overall. Overall, it's pretty good. Uh, and I know there's a lot of hand-wringing even to this day. And I would say that Look, utility rates continue to move up. Yeah, there's a couple down here and there, but they're going to end up being temporary too. They're going to find ways to push them back up. Uh, watch, they always do. And we're going to see you know, more and more consumers realize that uh, the utility rates are going to keep climbing. Um, that's also important for the utility scale, the front of the meter, because the utility rates keep climbing, power rates keep climbing. That incents more and more cash flows uh, to be put back into these projects. And so even away from you know, any IRA subsidies and so forth, uh, it, the actual money itself is flowing into the sector. Uh, we need to see a lot more capital flow into this sector. And it's not just uh, the clean uh, technology sector, whether it's, uh, you know, hydrogen or solar or wind or front of the meter, behind the meter, but also, of course, the, the entire uh, oil and gas sector has not had very good cash flows at either. So we need to see a lot more money flowing into the market. And I think that's the source of the concern but right now, uh, putting uh, solar service on your home, along with storage and EV charging and, and uh, uh, load management and so forth, it makes more and more increasingly so economic sense to do so. So some consumers are responding to that as fast as they're allowed to and signing up uh, for the service. You know, you mentioned the lack of uh, capital. What do you think needs to be done to help incentivize? I mean, there's obviously the lack of clarity around some of the tax incentives that you just mentioned, but what else more could come to light that would help bring that capital into, this, into the sector? 
That's a great question. Nobody has an answer right now. The overall monetary policy is obviously extremely restrictive right now in, with the Fed and other central banks trying to fight inflation. And so they're draining liquidity. They being the central banks are draining liquidity out of the system. Uh, so uh, the, the, probably the best answer is just monetary policy is an extremely blunt instrument. And so they're trying to shut off flows of capital across the economy, uh, including in places like energy that shouldn't be shut off. Um, I think we're creating a problem. Uh, that's going to come uh, back and really bite us as far as uh, we could have to see we could see in the not too distant future some pretty significant price um, jumps in energy. Uh, what worries me is there the complacency grows. Um, I'm seeing more and more people go price of oil is not going to go up much further. It could go down. Price of gas is really just going to go sideways. Everything's just complacency, complacency, and we're seeing tighter and tighter uh, market conditions outside the equipment of of solar batteries and so forth, uh, we're seeing tighter and tighter supplies on, on the energy side of the equation, namely in the hydrocarbons area. We think that the capital flows will come back with a vengeance because the uh, price points will come back with a vengeance, pushing those utility rates up even further, much further than people think. Uh, but we'll see what happens. But nobody disagrees that if you look at the amount of capital required to just put the capacity, whether it's solar or you know, natural gas or whatever, in, in place for the global demand uh, to be met that we expect to be there, uh, it's not enough capital. And then on top of that, the of course, the, the tra energy transition decarbonization that we all know needs to happen quickly. I mean, look at what's going on in the East Coast right now in New York with the wildfires in Canada and so forth. I mean, climate change is a real issue. We need to have a sense of urgency to that. Uh, I don't think that's, uh, you know, well, I think some people may push that back, but not many, right? And, and the amount of capital that's going to be required for that today is quite a bit higher, to say the least, than where we're seeing the kind of capital inflows today. So this all needs to change and change very quickly. But right now, we're in a very restrictive monetary policy, and, uh, and the amount of liquidity in the overall global economy and markets is, is clearly being drained and, and going down. So I think that that's probably my best answer. It's not a greatly satisfying answer, but that's the best answer I have for you. You know, my focus is always on the policy. And so I'd add just through a policy lens, I, I don't think we can discount the amount of capital that is sitting on the sidelines awaiting more specific guidance. So if you think about the domestic manufacturing base that we are trying to build here in the United States and that the Inflation Reduction Act was meant to help create, there is guidance needed around how those policies will be implemented and further guidance needed on what counts as domestic content. And so I have talked with numerous manufacturers who are looking at, do they build a factory here in the United States and take advantage of the IRA, or do they build a factory in country X? And the amount of time it takes and the, the continued uncertainty around what the conditions are going to be and the rules are going to be here in the United States uh, really makes it more likely that that capital is going to flow to another country. So in that case, it's maybe not a, it is more a distribution of capital as opposed to capital availability, but that's a real factor that is taking place. The other area in which we're awaiting guidance is on transferability of tax credits. And so, you know, as those tax credits are able to be uh, transferred to other entities, there will be, I think, more flow of capital into this space. We heard the other day that perhaps June we would get more, it, it is, it's still June, right? <laughs> Maybe when we're together uh, in, um, in San Francisco in a couple of weeks, we'll have that guidance and be able to have more 
uh, visibility onto what the rules are around transferability and how much of an impact that might have on uh, the tax equity markets and in terms of expanding the amount of, of um, participants in that market and the appetite. Uh, but I think those those two pieces as well are important to consider when you think about the the role that policy is playing. Energy policy, John talked about fiscal policy, but energy policy is playing in this capital constraint uh, marketplace. Now, if you go back to 2019, uh, you know, every year since then, solar has been an increasing percentage of the overall installed generating capacity. Now, even during those years, we've had some significant supply chain crunches, which seem to have alleviated a little bit in in the first quarter as parts make their way through the ports. But what do you think is driving that growth? And do you think that that's going to continue on over the next, call it three to five years? And, and Abby, I'll start with you. So I absolutely do see think that we will see that um, growth continue over the next three to five years. I think the market is poised to at least triple over the next five years. And I think that's for a number of reasons. One is just increasing energy prices, right? There has been so much volatility in the natural gas market at all. And, you know, building more natural gas plants seemed amazing when the prices were really low to have continued to climb. That has had a huge impact on consumers. And so I think residential customers are looking at increased energy prices. They are looking at increasingly frequent uh, weather disturbances. They are forced outages in places like California because of wildfires. There are droughts that are impacting the availability of energy. And so the consumer marketplace is demanding more reliable, affordable, clean energy. And that is solar and solar paired with storage. If you think about the commercial markets, right? So if you think about either anything from big warehouses to um, to the tech companies that have, you know, that are that are huge buyers. They have a whole set of corporate um, sustainability goals. Those are being um, fueled by their customers, by their shareholders, by their employees, and those aren't going away, right? So that that's happening. And then, as John referenced, you know, we see utilities um, making not only. Uh, pronouncements about their carbon-free goals, but actually putting out RFPs. Some of them are technology-specific, but a lot of them are technology-neutral, right? They're going for the lowest price, and solar and solar plus storage are winning on price. And so, you know, I think it's the policy is a huge part of all of this, right? That that's again the frame that I bring. But the, they're winning in the marketplace, right? John's customers are choosing solar plus storage because it brings them more reliable cleaner and more affordable energy, not because they have some sort of ethos about wanting to have solar panels on their homes. To build on what Abby said, uh, what we're seeing is is that if you look at in particular, because the world we live in and the reason why we live in that world is because we've believed in it from day one, it was going to be a bigger driver was behind the meter solar and storage and the other technologies. Simply put, as you electrify everything, but in particular transportation, and essentially pour that demand into the existing power system, there is no other way to serve that demand than to put the generation at the endpoints of the system, which are the homes and businesses, and match it with the load. There is not going to be a lot of the transmission, distribution lines, tear up the streets, run a bunch of lines everywhere, eminent domain everything. It's not going to happen. And Utilities know this. Some have been open about that. Some have not been. Most have not been. But they don't want that to, that to be the answer, but that is the answer, and that is the only answer. 
And when you look at it from that standpoint, we are about to, in our opinion, experience, you know, everything's an S-curve on technology adoption. We're in the bottom part of the movement up in the S-curve, in our opinion. We're about to see this thing really boom. And part of that is going to be, the, as I mentioned earlier, the oversupply of equipment relative to the price points uh, that are you know, setting the demand. Uh, so that as the price moves down to clear these, uh, this oversupply, demand, it, it, by definition, is going to be pushed up right? That's Econ 101. And we're seeing that. I made mention about that in storage. We're going to see that in a pretty big way. So as your costs come down, this is just any technology. It really has nothing to do with the energy business uh, at all, no matter what the field type is and technology type. This is any technology in in any economy at any time, and especially in a market-based economy. We are going to see the economy respond to those new price points, respond to better equipment. Look at the innovation that's coming out from a growing number of global competitors on the OEM side of things. Uh, Tesla has exciting products, Enphase, SolarEdge, you know, Generac, LG launched a new product. We're, we're seeing even some uh, new SPACs uh, out there with some new technologies out there. So, um, you know, Franklin came out of uh, nowhere, I think I can say that, really started making a good, you know, good product. I have competitors that are funding new product innovation. So there's a lot of innovation that's happening out there happening in in the EU, happening in China, happening in uh, Japan, Korea, Australia, the United States, the IRA is hopefully uh, and is supposed to make a movement here to bring that innovation here and have us lead the globe, uh, which I think we have a really good shot at because of the IRA to do that. Um, So that's going to spark, we think, a tremendous amount of boom. And again, I don't know if that's that much of a prediction given what we're already seeing here. I think people are just you know, for, you know, given it goes back to the answering your previous question, but people are just uh, way too pessimistic on on growth, way too pessimistic. They're going to miss this in a big way uh, because we see uh, the, the market really uh, beginning to take off because we have so many new innovations. It's not just solar anymore. It's it's so much more than, than just solar. Hey John, given we're in a, a high interest rate environment and we've seen a number of high profile bank failures, which has kind of spooked the banking industry a little bit and had them go through kind of a risk mitigation process and and there's obviously a lot of equipment that it, that is financed but how do you how do you feel that that is impacting uh, the industry now well there there were a number of credit unions community banks regional banks that would buy and they've only bought loan paper they did not buy lease and power purchase agreement paper uh, and so that made some of the capital flows uh, that went into the residential and commercial parts of the solar industry and to some degree the utility scale um, it, it made it you know, where the financing went you know almost uh, completely to loans and loans are more susceptible to interest rate creases because about a, about hundred percent of the capital stack hundred percent of it is directly related to the cost of debt um, and then under uh, lease and PPA because of the monetization of the investment tax credit, it's usually something far less than than 100%. Say, call it you know 50%, 60%, 70%, somewhere in that so circa about 60% is susceptible to interest rates. Now there is some pressure on tax equity, um, but tax equity has been remarkably stable even despite some very uh, obviously a very wide swing in the interest rate environment. So there's been some uh, a great deal of stability in that source of capital out there. And in fact, we find you know quite an ample supply of tax equity. And then you know, to Abby's point about um, transferability of the ITC, that's going to open it up even more. Um, so, so we think that choke point is going to be removed for the industry 
that was that was maybe one of the most important parts of the IRA in our opinion. So when you look at the overall capital availability, uh, we think that uh, because of that change in, in the ITC, the transferability, it, it will actually open up more uh, sources of capital uh, to the industry that we didn't see before. We're already seeing that. Again, that I'm not sure that's a, much of a prediction. We're waiting on guidance uh, to Abby's point, but we're seeing interest for sure, a, a large amount of interest in buying those credits. And then the second thing is with the Department of, uh, of Energy, the, the loan office on, under Jigger Shaw, uh, what he's doing there, I think is, um, you know, most, it's the word's getting out, but the word needs to get out more is that's an awful lot of capital that's being put in the site, not just from, you know, guaranteeing and providing loans to manufacturing of, you know, whatever it may be, uh, you know, solar panels, batteries, and hydrogen, et cetera, but also look at what uh, we're doing with uh, our Hestia. Um, and in terms of the Department of Energy guaranteeing about 90% of the cost of capital so we can expand the availability of our service to those that uh, don't have access to it now. So there's more sources of capital. That's going to open up what we think is a AAA in, investor in the um, asset-backed securitization market. Uh, and what that means is simply is, is that the availability of capital is going to expand because of that guarantee and what the, the Department of Energy has, has done. So there are a number of examples to counteract what is clearly a, a uh, you know community bank credit union regional bank issue, and to be clear, you know at least for us, we didn't we had zero activity in that part of the uh, banking system. Um, some competitors had a hundred percent of their activity or a good chunk of it there, so they're hurt. So there's I think the right way to look at this is there's some winners, there's some losers. That we definitely lost some flow of funds, and not, and obviously it's not specific to storage or to solar and storage, but. Um, we've also had some that are specific uh, with the IRA for or solar storage and some other technologies open up to to basically counteract uh, what we're losing there. So it may not be one for one. It's certainly not going to sync up nicely on the timeline. But I think overall we're going to end up being in a in a much better situation capital flow wise because and eventually these regional banks will come back. Um, this they're not going to be doing zero forever. No, then that just goes back to your your point, John, earlier about getting more capital into the space to help it. So a lot of those factors, you know, yep. time considerations as well, but uh, eventually can help increase the flow of capital into the space, which you say is, is sorely needed. So Abby, the the first quarter that we were talking about earlier had tremendous growth in solar, the re- the record quarter, um, and we saw growth in all the kind of different segments, with the exception of community solar, which was actually down. As a matter of fact, we've kind of brought down our forecast over the five years by another percentage point. What's driving those results, and and what do you what's your thoughts about it going forward? You know, community solar is such a construct of policy, and um and a, and it's cha- you know every state is different, and every state usually has a time limited or a um sort of consumption limited amount of community solar that they authorize, and so. I think that's what we're seeing as sort of this ebb and flow in the ways in which different states' programs are coming online or going offline. So I think that's one of the challenges. You know, from the business model point of view, obviously customer acquisition remains a pretty significant challenge um, for community solar and, and an expensive part of their value proposition. Um, and I honestly think that, you know, just education, right? That's probably where folks would look at me more and say, Abby, what are you doing to educate consumers about the benefits? But I do think that, right, like it's very obvious if you are own a home that you could put solar on it. It's very obvious if you're a utility that you could 
have solar and storage in your asset class, but it's not totally intuitive that um, if you were in a multifamily building or if you were in a condo or whatever, that you could also participate in the solar market. And so I do think there's some customer education there that could happen as well. Um, there are a number of different things that the federal government is doing, right? They, they put out a, a community solar challenge, I think somewhere through the middle of last year. But I do think it is much more of a state by state issue. I will say that one of the areas and I think that the report that we put out together highlights is that the continuing supply chain challenges, right? You, you met, I think you used the, word, the term earlier that they've been alleviated somewhat, right? If you were on the alleviated part, that was good. If you were only on the somewhat, then you're still hurting. And so I think some of those community solar developers um, are, are probably um, a little bit more challenged, right? They're just on scale. Those companies don't have quite the buying power. Um, that some of the large scale utility or the large the the large the large scale residential <laughs> um, have the ability to you know contracting power and sort of buying power. So I I think that that plays a role. But you know if you think about the passage of the IRA and the sort of um, tenants and values that are inherent in that with regard to just environmental justice and addressing some of the um, communities that have historically been left behind, community solar is a tool that can help address that. And so I, I do think that we will see that um, that market continue to grow, but uh, I don't think it grows quite as organically as perhaps the residential or the utility scale one. Yeah, I, in terms of community solar, we don't yet do any... Uh, uh, business in that area of the market. Uh, it's certainly something that we've been looking at and and have in our um, our forward plan to do at some point. Uh, uh, completely agree with all of Abby's points, in, in particular that that is a rather what I would call a bespoke market, uh, as she mentioned. It varies by utility, and I think that does highlight another important point about we really need to have an overhaul of the entire energy uh, industry regulatory-wise. And I know I'm asking a lot of Congress uh, to <laughs> get something done that would be positive here um, with the divided Congress. But and, and I don't expect it to be clear about this, but I think that this is part of, at some point, there is going to be enough of a push in a crisis that they're going to have to respond. Um, and that's just that's democracy too. We don't respond until there's a crisis. Look at the debt ceiling deal. We they literally took that down to the few, last few hours. I mean, you didn't have to do that, but we do it. That's just the way. It's like Winston Churchill said: uh, the Americans will do the right thing after they tried everything else. Um, but when when you look at the whole system, it's got to be overhauled. It's got to allow competition. It's got to allow the ability to have competitive providers come in and be able to wrap in not only the, the grid power, but also community power that comes through a grid that they that provider may, may or may not own. Um, and then the behind the meter solar and storage. So it's really more about an energy, true energy provider, mixing and matching the best uh, solutions for the customer, um, hopefully all being clean, right? And, and then how do I get the cheapest power with the highest reliability at the level of reliability that customer is willing to pay for. That's where this is all going. It needs to go. Um, yeah, utilities, and, and for the most part, get in the way of that and, and, and that free-flowing innovation. And this is a good part of the example, part of the market is, let's get them out of the way so we can have the market come in and provide. And I think community solar would boom. I'm confident of that. 
So we just need to uh, clean things up, standardize it, uh, really make sure that, uh, how would you like a, a federal regulator that actually has got some uniformity to it like we're used to in telecommunications and internet? It's not perfect, but gosh, it's far better than the power system that we got right now. And as we, again, as we electrify everything, we, in particular the transportation part of the energy business and pour it in, the ability to have this whole uh, overhaul of the electricity system in the United States and the regulatory structures what I'm referring to, that necessity is going up with electrification and transportation. So we need to see this innovation. And again, these numbers will get blown away when you allow competition, consumer choice, and uh, other uh, market participants to come in and cobble together these solutions for these different co customer bases and really be able to provide solutions that people want and at prices uh, that are much cheaper today. Yeah, I just want to add on something to what John said. I totally agree with him. And I, I want to build on a point he made earlier, which was that, you know, you mentioned interconnection and right, the bane of pretty much everyone's existence. And I think it points to a bigger challenge that we have, which is what John was referring to. I think it is a, a fallacy to imagine that we can transform our energy system with the existing construct we have, right? Like, how do we talk about transformation within the existing uh, outline, right? So if we think about it, we take interconnection as an example, it's already not working, right? Like it, there are incredible, I mean, when you imagine a project, like on the utility side, it takes three to four to five years to get through the interconnection study process. On the residential side, it takes an, um, it, it takes way too long, right? It varies, which is already part of the problem, but it just takes way too long. Um, and so the solution set at the moment is just to you know, continue the existing process, make some tweaks around the edges, and then just try to shove more projects through. It's like, all we're smart people. We know that's not going to work, right? Similarly, like transmission planning. Okay, well, I think there's general consensus that if we want to build out more large-scale solar, that we will need more, and large-scale wind, we will need more transmission lines. So just sort of hoping that they somehow get, get built is not a strategy. Um so, you know, I like I probably sh I share both the um, analysis that something really big needs to change and the informed skepticism that then anything will change without some sort of crisis. But I do think it is uh, inherent on us. If we think about a transition, it is not merely the fuel sources that we're transforming or even the business model, but literally the regulatory construct in which all of this is taking place. Yeah, exactly. If you were to build a regulatory framework to accommodate the energy transition that move to more renewables, this is not how you would you build it. So it's it's really kind of almost trying to fit everything within what we have and adjust as we can, particularly given a divided divided government. That's right. Um, and I want to uh, you know add to that. Uh, I do feel like that we're moving down the path of bringing along. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, the IRA was passed because the Democrats had complete control of both the executive branch and both houses of Congress. We are seeing a undercurrent, and I think that's what it has to be right now, but it's coming to the to the surface of where the Republicans' side is really starting to join in this uh, endeavor as well. And you can see it in a couple of different areas. One is look at where these plants that Abby has mentioned a couple of times to, to make what, you know, batteries, uh, different, you know, different pieces, cells, wafers, modules, um, poly, et cetera. Of the of the, of the uh, uh, you know solar modules themselves and inverters etc. Look at where those plants are being cited. Uh, about two thirds of them, maybe higher, are being cited in Republican districts. 
And so they, these these folks are not dumb. They're members of Congress. They're not dumb. Well, most of them aren't. Um, Abby can probably help hind on that, or maybe can't. But you know, when you look at it, that is a an, a broadening of a of a political base to go in there and say, look, we need to have change in this system, right? You cannot have a technological shift like we're talking about. Yes, it was brought about to address climate change, but there is a huge technological shift in solar and storage with distributed uh, capabilities that we've never had for uh, never had before. Going back to the beginnings of the electrical industry with Thomas Edison. And that is going to change the business model of this industry. We need the regulatory to change with the business model. This is not unlike the cellular telephony, the internet, IP telephony. We needed the 90, we need the 96 Telecommunications Act equivalent. We need to overhaul this entire space and this everything will boom and it'll go much faster than people think. A lot of wealth will be created, a lot of jobs will be created here in this country. And we will also have not only clean power and addressing and leading the world in climate change, which we should lead. We shouldn't be sitting there looking for other people uh, to, to uh, lead for us. Uh, sometimes that's thrown out there. What is China doing? Forget about China. Let's go delete it ourselves. Uh, what about being the leader? Um, and that's what we've done at best as Americans. And then secondly is, is that when we get through doing that, we'll own the innovation, not somebody else. And I think that's key and important and part of our long-term success as a country as well. So um, I do think that we um, are making progress in, in a bit of way in the politics side of things. Uh, we even have oil and gas firms that are very highly interested, to say the least, in hydrogen and carbon sequestration down here in Houston. I mean, the sea change in the interest level and the excitement by the oil and gas industry is huge. It's a 180. It, that You cannot overemphasize um, that uh, change in attitude and what they're doing enough. And so that has an impact politically as well for obvious reasons. And so there's a lot of reasons to be hopeful. Maybe not now to Abby's point, my point, but I think that there's more of a, of a drive and impetus to, to overhaul the regulatory structure and to get things moving in the right direction uh, to address uh, the new energy um, industry or tra energy transition than a lot of people believe. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the, I think a lot of the disagreement is more on the pace of the change. You know, as you said earlier, cutting off certain aspects of energy uh, to kind of force it at a, maybe a faster pace than is feasibly possible. But I think it's it, we found the common ground in terms of the energy transition and what needs to be done and where we're going. It's how do we get there, right? And I think that's what's driving the, the disagreements. You know, we, we were talking a little bit earlier about, about the supply chain and kind of to your point about the divided Congress is, you know, they, they have, there was legislation that was passed to roll back the two-year moratorium on the, the import tariffs uh, that President Biden vetoed. So obviously that had a little bit of an impact, at least for the next two years, on being able to alleviate some of that. But but John, what what are you seeing as being the impact of some of these supply chain constraints right now? And how do you see that going forward in the next two years? Well, I think you know, first and foremost, uh, you know, look, you may not agree with everything that President Biden has done or uh, is, is wanting to do, but you sure got to give him credit for being, it should be in a leader here. Both parties were doing something that was incredibly stupid and out there trying to move ahead of where physically people uh, can be moved as far as building capacity. I mean, look, we, we, we have a plan. It is the IRA. We do need guidance faster. So that should have had members of Congress call in and say, how do we get uh, to, to Mr. Podesta? How do we get this moving faster? Basically help Abby out here and get the guidance. That's what they should have been using their energy and time for but they didn't. They used it on something like this because they're trying to make political points. And no matter where you are, 
hitting China over the head, uh, you can't do it too many times, whether you're a D or an R. And that's, that's fine, I guess, if that's the way you want to go about solving a real problem in the world and dealing with our number one geopolitical foe. But by the way, it's not the only geopolitical foe. Look at Russia and, and some other you know, outlaw states, Iran, North Korea, et cetera. We got, we got plenty of opponents is, is the point, but we seem to pick on this one in particular, and then we let it drive policy that doesn't make any sense. And so when you have something like the IRA that's already in motion to get the industry here, grease the wheels, get the guidance out, get it done, and then be patient and let, let it happen. You have a plan. You have a funded plan. You're supposed to execute and allow execution on that plan. I don't think that's radical at all, but give it time because you can't come in there and build a factory you know, next month or even in two months or even a year out from now uh, for a lot of these different pieces. So uh, it, it, when you look at where we are supply chain-wise, I think as long as we can continue to get a little bit of time here and then get the guidance out, get the factories moving, which they clearly are, get them built, I think the supply chain is what we're seeing will continue to be an oversupplied situation, which would be great for consumers, great for the adoption and everything that we've been talking about as far as growth of the industry. So I'm quite op optimistic. I know there'll be some fits and starts because what Abby has to deal with as far as my reference in, not her words, by the way, mine, about what uh, Congress uh, did with that uh, resolution. But um, I think that overall, here's the other point about why that was so pointless for Congress to do, uh, is, is that it, the panels and, and the uh, modules and inverters or whatever it is that you're trying to block, those are going to show up anywhere. If you don't think they are, you don't know what you're doing. Um, you don't have an idea about how the world really works. Like if you really think that nobody's buying Russian oil, you're naive. And that's despite our best efforts to try to clamp that down. Those panels, those inverters, those batteries will end up someplace and they will displace and add supply into the marketplace. And so given the market enough time, we kind of will see some of those activities. So you may not see Chinese specific uh, equipment coming to the United States, but you'll see a growing number of country uh, uh, specific equipment show up here and supply will continue to increase. By the way, that's not much of a prediction. That's exactly what's been happening, which is why the price of about everything has been coming off so much, modules and batteries in particular, and even inverters. So uh, I think it's uh, overall, we're gonna be fine, but we've gotta make sure that we don't do anything stupid short term because when you do something short term, like put a moratorium or a block and you know, start just seizing uh, uh, containers of modules and so forth, you're hurting Americans. You're hurting Americans that didn't get cheaper power in their homes. You're hurting jobs because nobody can sit around and wait for a paycheck while you decide you, what you're gonna do over the next six months or so. It's something that they need in terms of that paycheck that week. And that, so it's more about the timing. So think about it before you do something. Uh, but uh, overall, I think we'll be, uh, we'll be fine. Yeah, I think um, leadership really matters. Elections have consequences that if we did not have President Biden in the White House really standing up for the policy that he put in place, we as an industry would be facing billion dollars of retroactive tariffs today. Right. And so one person may stood up and made that happen. The second point I'll make, though, is that in the House of Representatives, we had a number of Republicans vote with us, vote against the repeal of the moratorium, like it, it gets crazy. They voted with us. That's all you need to know. And you know, I talked to almost almost each and every one of them. Actually, I think I talked to every one of them 
And to a person, they said, I heard from solar businesses in my district, solar is taking off. This is a very unfriendly business position to take. This is goes against sort of the way in which the United States conducts itself. We do not punish businesses who have followed the law for the last 11 months and then say, oops, we changed our minds. Now we're going to stick you with all of these tariffs retroactively. And so I think, you know, I, I we can have a long conversation about our supply chain and sort of holes in the supply chain and where we need to invest and what kind of technology we need. I can easily have that conversation. But I think one of the more interesting conversations is the one that John raised, which is the political one, which is that so many of these investments from the IRA are going into Republican held districts, right? Folks that never voted for this policy, but are now reaping the benefits of it. And that is a real opportunity for us as the clean energy industry is to capitalize on that, right? Build more of those champions, build more of those advocates, those um, Republicans who voted with us on the CRA, you know, we're going to be building, expanding those ranks and saying, hey, you know, fill in the blank. I'm not going to name particular companies on this podcast, but there you know who they are. Um, You know, that's how we win this win. That's how we make these policies durable. That's how we provide certainty to the marketplace. And so I think those things will all be a part of it. I do agree with John that there will be certainty of supply as we continue to build more of this in the United States and in, in friendly countries. Um, John's right. There's not just one foe here. There are, there are numerous foes. Um, but instead, maybe we focus on where our allies are and how we you know, don't look at this as only U.S. made, but a friend made a manufacturing uh, strategy. Um, so I think that will happen. And I, I applaud Congress for really investing in that. We got to give it time to work, man. Like it didn't even pass a year ago. Like there, we can't build an entire manufacturing base in 11 months, right? It took a couple decades for it to erode in this country. It's going to take more than a minute for it to come back. Okay, so last question, John. I wanted to ask you about your thoughts on California's NEM 3.0 and, and its impact uh, on the industry. Well, uh, on, on NEM 3.0, uh, I think it was uh, pretty clear, and, and, and as time marches on, it'll become more clear uh, to the Public Utility Commission of California to the politicians and to the utilities that this was a misguided move and a pretty uh, significant proportions. Um, misguided uh, in, 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 from whose perspective though? Their perspective. It was, if I was running a utility, I would not have done that. What we're seeing in this fixed fee proposal that they have based on income, I mean, what a mess that would be um, to try to put in place. They, by the way, have no idea how you're gonna put that in place, no idea. It will literally take them years to even try to do it. It's ridiculous. And these are the kind of actions of monopolist socialism, corruption, and not looking at what's best for the people. And, and I've chosen my words very carefully. This is terrible policy, to say the least. And when you look at the out, uh, outcome of that policy, it, you can already see it. It's everybody's going to batteries. I mean, our attachment rate is zoomed up. It's well past 60% and still keeps climbing. We expect it to be 80%, 90% north, uh, possibly even 100% as we have in some markets like Hawaii, Puerto Rico, et cetera. And that means that we're not going to use NIM practically at all. Um, and that means that the consumers or customers that we have are going to use less of the power from the utilities. 
Now what they want to do is then say, well, if we don't do any work at all, we still want to get paid all the money. Well, that's great. Who's got that ability in this world? And that's crazy. That's literally what they're saying. So when you look at what the policy uh, is, is doing, it's pushing the customer to get more and more uh, involved as far as changing the way that they procure energy. And that means that they're going to buy more and more services from me, from Sonova, and from my competitors, not less. And the growth is going to be more. We're going to be selling more power is the way to think about it, more services per customer. And we're going to have more customers come in and go, wait, I kind of like that. It was just about saving uh, money now. Now it's got more reliability to it and I can do some more things. Maybe I can get some load management thrown in there. I can fill my car up. You know, the home is the gas station now. We essentially run the gas station. It's the way to think about it. So there's a lot of innovation and service that can happen here. That's all that innovation and service business is going to come to me. It's going to come to Sonova. Uh, well, I hope it comes to Sonova, but it's certainly going to come to our part of the industry. So this is a very short-sighted view. Uh, and bottom line is consumers and technology win every single time, even against monopolies. Go, to, go ask AT&T how it worked out for them against to be opposed to the cell phone. Go ask the cable companies how it worked out to be opposed to Netflix. Didn't work out so well, did it? It's the same thing that's going to happen here. So uh, we're doing fine. Yeah, is the, is the uh, growth... In terms of the number of customers uh, that we're growing by every single day, is that still down? Yeah, it's down about 30% or so. Keeps climbing. That storage attachment rate keeps climbing up too. I think we'll be back where we were probably by uh, third, fourth quarter, uh, be my guess. And then we're continuing to move upwards. We never had a big business in California. We actually see that this is a great opportunity for us to get a big business in California. So we're quite... Uh, quite optimistic. We're also running around and upselling our customers their batteries as fast as we can. And due to the price drops, that's even better. And so it's in sending more demand. So who knows? We may come out of this. Uh, uh, well, I actually do think I'm quite confident we'll come out of this much better than we went into the uh, into it uh, as far as the NIM uh, 3.0 changeover. So I'm very bullish on on, uh, on on the California market right now for us. Listen, uh, we're at time, and I, I really appreciate both of you guys coming on the show. Uh, very interesting discussion, um, and I, I really appreciate the time, so thanks. Thank you. John, it was so good to see you, as always. Thank you. All right. Be well, friends. I'm David Banmiller, and this is The Interchange Recharged. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts and suggestions for topics we should look at on future episodes. You can find us on Twitter. We're at Interchange Show. See you next time.